are entering a whole new era. The decade of positive change around the world, organizations have realized that you cannot intimidate human beings into productivity. The key is to let people do what they do best, whatever way works best for them. At the same time, fundamental principles of mass production give ordinary people access to powerful technology. That which was affordable to the few becomes available to the many. Mass production becomes mass productivity. The Industrial Revolution meets the Age of Enlightenment. The walls have come down. Opportunity has gone up. And your only limits will be the size of your ideas and the degree of your dedication. People, this is an exciting time to be alive. You just heard one of Apple's TV commercials circa 1990, introducing its low-cost Macintosh lineup. You can find that on YouTube with the keywords Industrial Revelation Apple. Mac Folklore Radio, read by Derek. The general notion that Apple products are expensive goes all the way back to the Apple II. We'll be taking you back to 1989, the year before the introduction of the high-end Macintosh 2FX, at $9,900, keyboard, monitor, and graphics card, extra. Apple did manage to deliver low-cost products in short order, but it very nearly did not happen. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the chairman and chief executive officer of Apple Computer, Mr. John Scully. Thank you very much. This is an exciting day for Apple. Now, as many of you remember, six months ago, in response to customer demand, Apple introduced the Macintosh 2FX, the highest performance Macintosh available today. Today, we're proud to announce a group of products that satisfies our customer needs at the other end of the product spectrum, the entry level. Now, people have been telling us we really love the Mac, We'd rather have a Macintosh, but it doesn't fit our budget. Well, we heard you. From this moment forward, Macintosh will reach more people than ever before. Macworld Magazine, December 1990. The Iconoclast by Stephen Levy. The soul of a new Macintosh. The twisted tale of the Mac LC. The computer that refused to die. In early 1988, the top executives of Apple Computer had many priorities for improving the Macintosh product line. Making a truly affordable color Mac did not top that list. But fortunately for them, and for us, two unheralded engineers realized that there would be considerable clamor for such an item. They resolved to design a color Macintosh that could be produced at a much more modest cost than the current Rage, the 2CX. The result of their labors, as well as the good efforts of literally dozens of Apple workers, is the Macintosh LC. But it was not easy. It was certainly not easy. The road to the Macintosh LC was to be pocked with detours and twists, treacherous obstacles, and tempting exits. A stark recitation of the various codenames for the project gives an indication of the shimmying course. Strange. Spin. And finally, the eponymous Elsie, that
That's E-L-S-I-E. It took resolve, a steady vision, and even some judicious insubordination to bring the vehicle home, ultimately parking it in the space-marked Victory Circle. Victory, however, was the furthest thing from the minds of Paul Baker and H.L. Chung in the early days of 1989. Management had just axed their pet project, a color computer called SPIN. They had finished the prototype around Christmas and had eagerly demonstrated it to any Apple executive they could call her. They had even gone to Apple's production facilities in Singapore to look into the potential cost of manufacturing the machine. But though Apple's brain trust generally agreed the computer was a fine one, SPIN was deemed not enough of a change from previous models to justify a go-ahead. Baker and Jung had a dead project. Baker and Chung It was a rough blow for two veteran Apple hands. Baker, now 35, had worked for Apple since 1979 and had spent five years as a key player on the Lisa team before leaving the company to work for the Macintosh's original designer, Jeff Raskin, at a company called Information Appliance. H.L. Chung, two years younger, had been the ninth employee Apple hired in Singapore. After immigrating to Cupertino in 1987, he headed the Apple II family design team. Then he wangled a transfer to the Macintosh side, where the action was. Since returning to Apple, Baker had been working on a project codenamed XO, pulling some of the Mac SE's features on a chipset to be retrofitted into the Mac Plus. Chung, the manager of Baker's team, was working on two stripped-down modular Macintoshes called Green Jade and White Jade. Those projects fizzled, but the vision behind them made sense. Quality Macs for lower cost. The idea resonated with each engineer's personal orientations. Baker had two children and was passionate about Apple maintaining its place in the education market. Chung was still drawn to the mystique of the Apple II, a computer first conceived as a color machine for the people. So why not a Macintosh iteration? To quote the system description Baker circulated in 1988, the prospective computer would be a small color Macintosh system based on the Mac II design. He listed the features that would distinguish this machine from its predecessors. Small size. Single floppy base configuration is only 90 millimeters tall. Single processor expansion slot, no new bus interface. Built-in video subsystem, no Mac 2 video board needed. Expanded system accommodates larger power supply. A low-cost RGB monitor based on Apple II GS for reduced cost. Baker and Chung worked on the computer in off hours during the early months of 1988. Eventually, of course, the project needed approval from above so that the custom chips could be designed and manufactured. It was at one of these reviews that the machine, then called Spin, spun off course. The superiors decided to scrap Baker's idea to use a low-cost monitor. They dictated instead that the computer use the same video scheme being implemented in the high-end Macintosh 2CI, then being readied for market. This would mean that SPIN would require the powerful, and costly, 68030 microprocessor. 
At that time, Baker temporarily left the project to work on yet another high-end Macintosh, the 2X. He returned in October 1988 in time to ready prototypes of Spin. The computer looked like an Apple IIGS with the power and the same slick high-resolution color of a full-size Macintosh 2. Twenty were produced. Baker and Chung distributed them throughout the company, to anyone who would take it, says Paul Baker. Yet, the project was cancelled. The low-cost color Mac, which by that time was not so terribly low-cost, seemed a fatality. Spin Control If that was the darkest hour for the project, Dawn was quick in arriving. The fortunes of the mother company were flagging, and the myriad critics of Apple Computer were quick to identify the cause. Its computers cost too much. Almost coincidentally with the squashing of spin, John Scully was promising a crowd of hostile stock analysts that Apple would one day dazzle its customers with a budget alternative to its current offerings. What he didn't say was that Apple had just snuffed its most viable low-cost Macintosh development effort. Fortunately, the project could be revived, but now that everyone would judge the computer by its price tag, the cost would have to be brought down considerably. The SPIN team was summoned to the office of then-Apple Vice President Jean-Louis Gasset to discuss what adjustments would be made to make SPIN a truly low-cost computer. Speaking first at the meeting was Bill Goines, a former Dynamic Engineering Manager who had joined Apple some months before to manage the SPIN project. Armed with some props, cheap color MS-DOS clones like the Tandy, he outlined various design alternatives. Since you couldn't have all the features of previous Macs at a fraction of the price, he argued, some beloved features of the Macintosh 2 would have to go. Jean-Louis Gasset had his own point to make. Leaving his seat and literally getting down on his knees, he implored the engineers, please, make it color, so the low-cost Macintosh would be color. Befitting the project's new high priority within Apple, the team was beefed up considerably. There was soon a squad of engineers and designers who would lay out the circuit board, program the new ROMs, and perform the dozens of other jobs required in the creation of a new machine. But, as Bill Goines later recalled, first we had to have the plan, a controlling vision that would dictate what to put in and what to leave out. In early 1989, the plan was to cut costs to the bone. As a result, the prospective computer, now codenamed Elsie, began to shape up as a kind of low-rent color Macintosh, with the penny-ante Apple IIc as its role model. It's almost shocking to contemplate now, but the prototype they produced that spring resembled a small one-piece box like the Apple IIc with a built-in keyboard. It had a single 800K floppy drive that could be used without a hard drive, since much of the Mac system software would be embedded in the ROMs. The power supply was lodged on the wall plug. It included a single megabyte of RAM. The machine would be able to output only 4-bit color, a crude alternative to the Macintosh 8-bit standard. Powering the computer was a simple 68000 chip, 
the same one found in the Macintosh Plus. This version could indeed be produced cheaply. The problem was that it wasn't a very good computer. The processor was overmatched. It took eons to draw the color. Obviously, a more powerful processor was required, as well as more storage. It was a tough decision, because the more powerful the processor, the more expensive the computer would become. Ultimately, a solution evolved. There would be more than one low-cost Macintosh. Around April, a team was spun off to work on the original spin design to create what would become the Macintosh 2SI. And a few months later, another team would break off to produce the black-and-white Macintosh Classic using the 68000 processor. Some of Paul Baker's XO work found its way into this computer. The LC itself would navigate a middle course using the Motorola 68020 chip. All the computers would use a hard drive. The plan was to do it without a hard drive. But it really isn't a Macintosh without a hard drive, admits Baker. Since low-cost manufacturing and components were essential, Baker and the other engineers practiced a frugal, almost miserly form of design. At one point, there was a furious controversy over whether a plug should terminate in a male or female connector, the distaff alternative being chosen to save a few cents. Perfectly good components used in previous Macs required a redesign so they could be produced at a slightly lower cost. Making a new keyboard from scratch saved $2.50 a unit. And do you wonder why there's no way to hook an external floppy disk drive to the LC? Hey, a connector would have cost $1.50 per unit. While such vigilance could slice a few dollars off the production cost, the real savings came from redesigning the system from the ground up. We learned something very important about cost reduction, says Chung. You can't do it by eliminating features. In fact, the team was eager to introduce entirely new features into the Macintosh family. The strategy in these cases was to build the feature, get it to work, and only then seek approval. The key to getting something accepted is to make it a fait accompli, explains Paul Baker. A prime example is the voice input capability now included in all the new Macs. When engineer Eric Harslam suggested it, everyone agreed it was a neat idea. A custom sound chip was designed, and the LC team implemented a scheme whereby the user could simply pick up the mic, included with each computer, and verbally annotate documents. When the executives heard it, they were convinced, says Baker. Lowering the Boom As the project stretched on, the LC team began feeling the pressure. After all, consensus had it that the fate of Apple depended on the success of these low-cost Macs. People who wandered into project manager Bill Goyne's office would be startled, even unhinged, to see a chart indicating that these new computers were destined to replace the Mac SE, the Mac Plus, and the Mac 2CX, the products that basically kept Apple in business. I felt the strain, admits Chung. The whole company was on our back. The designers had to fight off the deadline pressure and focus on the computer itself. Even though we knew it was important to get it out, says Baker, we had to do the right thing. Every detail took on importance, 
and that certainly included the physical appearance of the new computer. Once the built-in keyboard was scratched, the designers considered all sorts of weird approaches. For a while, recalls Bill Goines, people were charmed with a boombox shape, a long rectangle that you could, if you wished, transport on your shoulder. But since a boombox cannot support a computer monitor, that idea died a wistful death. Eventually, the industrial designers came up with a distinctive shape, a flat box, something like a squashed Mac-bottom disk drive with a slightly sweeping curve on the front. Originally, Jean-Louis Gasset objected to the curve, but the LC team, resilient to rebuffs, decided to take an internal poll on the matter. The vote was 22 to 1 in favor when John Scully chanced by. What's the score so far? he asked, and was informed of the tally. Make that 23 to 1, he said, and that settled the matter. The designers had to make one more big adjustment on the LC, its method of producing color. All along, the idea was to use 4-bit color, which would demand less of the processor and the monitor. But the first few developers who saw the prototype complained. The Macintosh standard, they said, was the high-resolution 8-bit color of the Macintosh 2. Why make wimpy Macintoshes? The objection made sense. If we had released it with 4-bit color, we'd have a new and inferior software standard. We would be living with it forever, says Wayne Dyer, the Macintosh product marketing manager. The design team members came to realize that despite the expense it would incur, 8-bit color was the right thing to do. Typically, they did not inform their superiors that the plan had changed, but began to quietly implement it in their spare time. So by the time they revealed to the executives that the LC absolutely positively had to have 8-bit color, the design team was able to show how this could be pulled off. Indeed, they had done it. Off the Books That sort of anecdote is repeated over and over again when the designers recount the tale of the Macintosh LC. It was a computer essentially hatched from the bottom up. When the putative wise men in charge of the company would strike down part of the plan, or even the entire project, Paul Baker, H.L. Chung, and the others kept going, even if it meant that things were carried off the books for a while. Persistence paid off. We now have the Macintosh LC. This could be another Apple IIe, or Plus, or SE, says H.L. Chung, not doing much of a job of hiding his pride. Speaking of the Apple IIe, one of the neatest things about the LC is its ability to emulate that computer, with the addition of a board that sells for under $250. Just the sight of an old copy of Raster Blaster running on a Macintosh can make an old Apple II owner get all misty. Rather more significantly, this ability will enable the Macintosh to smoothly replace the hundreds of thousands of Apple II machines in schools and probably rescue the company from oblivion in the crucial kindergarten to 12th grade market. But the Apple II emulation board almost didn't make it out of the gate. In mid-1989, Jean-Louis Gasset killed it outright, just said no. What did the engineers do? They just kept working on it says Bill Goines. And when engineer Rob Moore finally produced a prototype that worked, the executive staff, of course, 
was convinced that the Skunk Works emulation board operation was justified. But that is the story of the Macintosh LC itself, the low-cost computer that Apple produced in spite of itself. Ladies and gentlemen, product manager of the Macintosh LC, Bill Goins. We designed the Macintosh LC to be both for our business and our education users. Let me take just a minute and tell you a little bit more about the design of the Macintosh LC. This is the logic board. And thanks to Paul Baker and the rest of the team, we've got an incredible design here. There are only 26 chips on this board, 27 chips on this board, to build a two megabyte color Macintosh. It's got built-in sound input, built-in color, and a really solid level of performance. Let's take a look at some of the details. Here's a 68,020 microprocessor. Now that's a 32-bit processor running at 16 megahertz. Now that allows us to outperform a 386SX. Here's a chip that supports built-in networking and the SCSI port. Over here's a slot uh, for expansion cards. There's gonna be a lot of those too. Everything from ethernet and token ring to the Apple II card that you saw Brianna demo here. And here's the video RAM. Now this provides support for three different monitors out of the box. You don't have to add any cards. It also provides a new color standard on a low-cost uh, computer. Now this level of hardware integration has allowed us to do something that you've asked for. It allows us to reduce the price of a color Macintosh system by over $4,500. That makes the Macintosh LC the lowest priced color Macintosh. Audio clips taken from the comprehensive Apple User Group Connection VHS archive on YouTube, back when Apple still cared about supporting grassroots users directly. Look for the November 1990 tape, which contains the entire 90-minute launch event for the classic LC and 2SI. Thank you for all your kind emails and reviews in the iTunes podcast directory. You can subscribe to Mac Folklore Radio and listen to other episodes at www.macfolkloreradio.com or send your story requests to derek at macfolkloreradio.com. Thanks for listening. Uh -huh.